I think this is the poetry in filmmaking and in art in general. You know, you you strive to to have the most delicate tonality of the the human emotions and the human you know everything you are experiencing. So going in depth into those things. Hey, my name is Nadine and welcome to a brand new season of In Her Lens. This podcast is about the women behind the films and their stories. I hope you're fired up because I am. I am so honored and thrilled to be kickstarting this season with the one and the only Ruthie Schatz. Born in Israel, Ruthie is an award-winning executive producer, director, editor, and writer. She is the founder, alongside her partner Adi Barash, of Ulari Films. Ruthie and Adi go deep into a subject's core, and they've made some of today's most impactful documentaries, including their Sundance debut, The Garden, Diamonds and Rust, and The Collaborator and His Family. Their ambitious, character-driven, raw projects confront taboo subjects, and as you'll hear Ruthie say in this interview, break them apart. They have exploded onto the international stage with their absolutely astounding 2020 documentary series on Netflix, Lennox Hill. It has become one of Netflix's most watched doc series ever, and the New York Times, Variety, and IndieWire have named this vivid portrait of a New York hospital some of 2020's very best TV. The series is a rare look at the lives of four doctors, two brain surgeons, an emergency room physician, and a chief resident OBGYN as they navigate the highs and lows of working at a renowned Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. After wrapping in 2019, Ruthie and Adi actually returned to the hospital in March of 2020 to capture the chaotic and emotional unraveling of COVID-19 in New York, a moment in history. In this episode, Ruthie and I talk about her early influences like Hitchcock, finding her passion for documentary and creating with her life partner Adi, about flipping perspectives and looking through complexity to imperfection, about making their Sundance debut The Garden, being fully convicted and invested in your subject, We talk about the differences between television and film, between the States and Israel, finding the delicate balance between your human hat and the filmmaker hat, the making of Lennox Hill, and capturing an erupting pandemic. I'm so pumped, so I'm just going to let Ruthie do the talking. Here is Ruthie Schatz on In Her Lens. Before we dive in, if you're interested, we start with a rapid fire round of questions to kind of get grounded with you and we can start off strong. Are you in? Okay, perfect. Stood in my way. Okay, dawn or dusk? Dawn. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Wine or beer? Wine. Travel to space or to the bottom of the ocean? To the bottom of the ocean. Ah, interesting. Uh, Favorite subject in school? Art. Um, A subject that you wish they had taught you in school? More science. Mm. Board game or card game? None. (laughs) (laughs) Appetizer or dessert? Um, Appetizer. Uh, A city you think people should visit? Cape Town. Oh, that's a really good one. Um, A a city that you would like to visit? There are so many. I guess Rio. Three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? Have fun. (laughs) 10-hour series. Yes. Um, The last thing that you read. um, What did I read lately? I I dove back. um, That was my latest. I dove back to um, The Artist and Margarita. 
and it's quite an extraordinary art how every time this book is like new it's probably the best book i've ever read that's a really really good recommendation beach or mountains beach uh the last thing that you photographed my kids mm. your go-to karaoke song hmm sweet uh, i believe uh phone calendar or physical planner phone texting or calling texting and the last thing that you watched uh picky blinders oh wow that's a great one <laughs> okay let's start at the beginning let's talk about you um you're from israel tell us a little bit about your childhood what did your parents do um i was born in a kibbutz in israel um to my dad was a seaman um, and afterwards he uh, went into the quarry business and opened a few quarries. My mom was a teacher um, initially and then she became, became a zoo therapist. I had an amazing childhood, very diverse, even though I, I grew up in a village. Um, our house was packed with people always. My, both of my parents were uh, people collectors. So I would wake up in the morning and step on a lot of bodies in the living room. <laughs> um, and uh, I grew up with three brothers. Um, much later, my sister was born. So we had a, a very vibrant house. Yeah. Are there any films that you distinctly remember from that time? Yes. So I watched all of Hitchcock films. In fact, I was the project the projector in uh, our little cinema. When we were kids, we had like a kid cinema. Mm -hmm. So I would, um, you know, I would project films like, uh, um, like, well, basically Fellini, Hitchcock, all, you know, all the, all the old films, black and white, lots of French films. Um, mm. We would watch Buñuel and it, we basically, without even knowing, we grew up on modern cinema and uh, new wave. Mm -hmm. And um, it's without even being aware of that, uh, because much later I decided I want to study film. This was the bricks for my art, um, as well as um, my grandfather was an artist. Interesting. Do you think that creativity was something that was really fostered in at home? What were your parents like when you were younger with that? So my parents weren't so artsy, um, but my grandfather was. And um, so it was very much pushed into this, but in a good sense. Um, also, the environment I grew up in um, was very creative. Um, it, and crafts and arts was always part of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, when I was um, in second grade, my father sat me down and showed me how to capture perspective and what is depth in space. Oh. And, and I clearly, very, like, very clearly remember that. And since then I started drawing and um, it was just part of me you know, observing situation and trying to capture them through my drawing. And later on, when I was 15, I started taking pictures um, and also sculpturing. Um, and throughout my high school, I had a studio basically that was my own, like my art studio and I would paint and draw. Both my parents loved music so much. So our house was filled with music um, and dance and um, poetry was also something that my mom uh, put an, an emphasis on when she brought us up. So she would read poems to us and we would write poems. 
And when did visual storytelling turn into something that you could get an education in and start a career in? What did academia look like for you? Yeah, so initially I was planning to go and study international law and international relationship. It was something I was very much drawn to. I, I guess also part of how I grew up with um, multicultural friends and people from all over the world that used to visit our house. But, um, but then again, I was also drawn to painting and I never really thought about filmmaking. A friend suggested that I check um, this very special school that just opened up in Jerusalem. It was the same Spiegel Institute. And because I had to, in order to get in, um, I had to write some assignments and so I had to write some scripts. And while I was in the process, and I, and I wasn't so intentional about it because I, I thought I'm going to study something completely different, but I was intrigued by the idea that nobody can really get into this school. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna give it a shot. And I, and I started writing scripts uh, throughout the summer um, as part of the acceptance um, process. And I loved it. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm, it's definitely something I would want to perceive. Um, and then I got accepted and there wasn't any question. Like when I got the letter, everything else just, you know, fell into place. Do you think that having a film education, what did that look like for you? And did, do you think that's something that's necessary for, uh, for filmmakers or how, what lessons did you learn from studying it? I think there's not just one thing, you know, um, education is really important in order to, you know, to understand the world and to have perspective and also to have more tools of expression. I think you can, if you are, you know, if you are resourceful and curious and, um, and, and love art, you can, you can get to these things without going specifically to school. But I do, I mean, for me, school was incredible and I, it did give me a lot of tools, not necessarily from the academic side of it, but more in the practical side of um, how to be resourceful, troubleshoot, uh, be able to produce multiple things, um, um, study, you know, I, I focused on editing, focused on, on filming, on uh, cinematography and directing, as well as script writing. So I, I, had the, I had the opportunity, a very nurturing opportunity to experience everything throughout filmmaking, um, which allowed me really to make a, a full hard decision of what I want to proceed with. But I think, you know, education is, um, for me, is, is, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, also because I, you know, I came from an intellectual house and I, and I feel like it's uh, also in the making, when I interview people to work for me, it's very, very important to me to know that they have a background, they understand structure, they understand framing, they understand composition, they understand poetry, you know, the, it, all those things uh, manifest themselves into the filmmaking. So I think it's crucial. Again, it really doesn't yeah. matter where you get it from as long as you get it. What was your first brush with documentary specifically and where did that training start for you? Um, that was in film school. So we had, a, um, um, we've been basically thrown into the water and um, our instructor asked us to find a character that is um, compelling and has um, um, a conflict. Um, and we had like 10 minutes of a film to make. 
Mm. Um, so in one weekend when I was traveling um, in the mountains of Jerusalem, the school is in Jerusalem, I came across this um, nomad um, who, who was living in a, in a, uh, in a cave with uh, a bunch of goats and some chickens. And I researched him and I, I found out that he was one of the most famous, notorious um, thieves in the country. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, he was called uh, the climbing cat because he, he had the, the most extraordinary ability to escape through walls and windows and um, and eventually he was caught and he was in jail for many years. And when he was released, he decided to live in nature. And he had this really deep philosophy about life. And he, he wasn't, he wasn't weird at all. He, he just, he was a person who chose to live in nature because of everything that life had taught him. He came from a very rough background. Mm -hmm. So I love the story and the research. That was a part that was really appealing to me. And, and I made a short film about him just one day. And I loved it, but then I abandoned that field and I, I kept pursuing fiction. And when I met my husband, Adi, um, it was in the last year of film school, um, he had told me about a, a very intense experience that he had before school where he went to work on a diamond mining ship off, off the shore of Namibia. Um, and he was operating as a security officer to you know, to guard the people that are selecting the diamonds. And um, I, I thought this is extraordinary and I've never seen anything like it or heard of it. And we decided to research it in depth and try to get an access. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, once we started this process, I fully realized how much I'm intrigued and loving the documentary producing mm. side and how fascinating it is and and everything fell into place in the sense of me wanting wanting to study international law and international relationship and mm -hmm. being involved in a larger community and being able to infiltrate infiltrate larger um, companies or la larger institutions it took us a year to to crack into this um uh, arena of diamonds and to do like a wide research and understand what's happening in Africa and what's the level of abuse or of you know of the, the country's resources and who is really benefiting from this and once we had all that background we were also able to crack into this organization and go and film on this boat we had some help from um, an Israeli relative from South Africa but altogether, we really had to crack a lot of things in the government. And it was fascinating, the whole spectrum. And then, and then the real thing, you know, just going in there, um, spending 19 days on board a crumbling diamond mining ship with 34 workers from all over the world who make 200 bucks a month while the you know while the beers and and namibian government are making millions and millions mm -hmm. every week um so this was completely fascinating and heartfelt and um it made me realize that this is something i'm 
I want to do. Yeah, really like a full body. Yes. I very much relate to this because I grew up so internationally as well. And I also, before I wanted to go into the arts, was like, oh, I'll go study international relations because I was so fascinated. But it's so interesting how through visual storytelling and, and, and just storytelling in general, you can process what's happening in the world. And it's a really exciting um, intersection to be at. You mentioned uh, your husband and you produce under Ulari Films. How did this partnership, you mentioned you met each other in film school, um, kind of take form and what is it like creating and working with your life partner? I think we don't know any different, you know, because we met we met at a in my school's party, and basically a week later we started working together and being a couple. So mm. we are both very very passionate about our work, and it's something that it's very very hard for us to detach from our personal life. Like when we come home, our kids constantly need to tell us to stop talking about work and we explain to them that this isn't just work this is part of our life and this is our love and this is our art it's not just like work per se but it Mm -hmm. doesn't always convince them but they are also very involved I think you know working together in this field is is an amazing and enormous gift because there's so much on your shoulder and having this person who fully understand you and speak your language um, mm-hmm. to be able to share it with is, is extraordinary. We also give one another a lot of freedom in our personal life and also in our creative life. Um, so I think that's really, you know, this really um, compensates on any, you know, feeling of suffocation or, or anything like it. We, it's just been like that since forever. And um, we have this choreography, we call it, you know, of how we work together. We, when we are on set, we, we hardly need to speak about anything. We already know like, what are the things we're looking for? What is the subtlety in direct and we're looking for? Um, we have such a, we developed together, you know, when we were starting and doing Diamonds and Rest, Adi had never filmed any any film before, you know, and we never, both of us never really directed anything of that spec. It was a 90 minute film um, for, you know, a, a documentary. We always had things very structured, fiction, written, you know, so it was, um, it was an extraordinary experience, you know, if speaking about where you study really, if you study, so we studied during this process more than anything else we have studied before mm-hmm. filmmaking. Um, and we also studied to work together during this film and, and let go of our egos and uh, know which fights are, are worth fighting basically on, you know, on subjects and, and, right. and also on personal level. Yeah, I'm sure it's something you're consistently navigating, but it's really exciting to have that that partnership. Let's talk about your films and your storytelling. Um, what I'm hearing so much too is this like full body yes. Um, what makes you want to tell a story and what do you find yourself looking for when you're looking for a project? I'm looking for things that will make an impact and I'm looking to inspire. I think one of the things I like is to take something that seems very obvious and known and to um and to break it out and basically go into its core and reveal something new that you haven't seen if it's if it's a personality if it's taking someone who's who's a traitor and uh, make you see him as a human being and forget about the facts of that he's a traitor 
you know, and, and realizing why he made the decision that he did. Um, I think uh, the complexity and the imperfections in, in human being is something that I'm, I always look for. Mm. I look for honesty um, and, you know, to strip out things. And, and this really defines, you know, my decision-making towards casting. But also, you know, when I'm looking for a subject, I do want to touch things that either people touched them before, but never in that manner, or things that nobody had dared to touch because they are taboo or they are like, I don't want to touch this. I don't want, you know, I want to touch this. I want to see how I can, you know, break it apart and, and figure out new things about it. Mm-hmm. You have this incredible arsenal of, of, of really touching and, and raw and important work. And um, the documentaries directed and produced by you and Adi are really focused on the societal issues and the raw depictions of communities. And when we'll kind of circle back to that, but talking about your Sundance debut film, Garden, for example, will you take us back kind of, I think it was 2003, 2004, and tell us a bit about what the film is about. Yeah, so um, Garden tells the story of Nino and Dudu, whose um, both work as prostitute in the electricity garden downtown Tel Aviv. Uh, both of them are Palestinian. Um, one is from, um, you know, the occupied territories, and one is from East Jerusalem, which we can also argue if it's a occupied territory. And um, they are both coming to Tel Aviv to work as prostitute. Initially, they came to Tel Aviv uh, after they ran away from abuse at home. And throughout the time, they found themselves in this small community um, of teenagers um, that live in squats um, and sort of supporting each other um, and trying to find some sense of community. And the, the point of view that we chose for this film is to show their story and their life story through their friendship which is a Mm -hmm. very rare thing on the streets. Um, And that was the most captivating thing about Dudu and Nino, that they they were able to create some sort of haven, which was their friendship, um, some sort of protection and a sense of belongness. Um, And um, we've been filming them for two and a half years. Um, Altogether, we spent three years with them, but we constantly kept in touch with them um afterwards as well um you know getting them out of prison uh finding representations for them um i think what was mostly captivating for me i'm very curious about you know the about teenagers and about um the the hurdles and the hardship that you have to go through um coming from um from such a ruined background and um, Adi was also into this space very much so. Um, part of it was um, the influence he had growing up in New York City, you know, in the 70s. And, and it, was, it was a big impact on him. And I think um, um, the decision to make this film came a lot before we actually met each other. Each one of us had some sort of encounter with this space. Um, and after we um, finished Diamonds and Rust and we had like our year tour in festival and so on and so forth, um, we made a decision to make this film and pursue this project. Mm-hmm. 
And it's an incredibly sensitive space to enter emotionally, physically, and politically complicated. I guess it's kind of a three-part question. Like, how do you prepare yourself as a filmmaker and then as a person and as a woman entering these spaces? Um, you don't. You, the thing is to understand, well, you do and you don't. So the one side of it is that you do a research and you understand the dynamic in the streets and you understand the dynamic in the, also in the crime world in this particular area because it has a big impact. I was threatened with a knife on my throat two times um, when kids from the garden saved my life, um, you know, and, and someone was trying to grab Addy's camera. So wow. we, we knew about these possibilities. We knew that there are pimps that trying to control the area. Um, and we managed to make relationship with everyone. So, so we will have some sense of protection, but mm -hmm. we were very, very, I mean, you know, today having kids, I don't know if I would um, behave in the manner that I did back then, because mm -hmm. we would just come there, you know, unarmed in any sense of the word, you know, just bringing ourselves, giving support, um, talking to everyone, um, making everybody know what we're doing so nobody will be caught, you know, by surprise and, um, um, we even orchestrated, um, there's one scene in, in, in the film where uh, Dudu is going with, um, with a client and nothing happened with the client, but we asked the client, we asked him, do you mind going with him in the car? We want, we want to get that feeling of intensity and, um, and it's a documentary, but this is somewhat, something that people need to show. And some, mm. some people need, or the audience need to see this. This is a very, this is the risks that these kids are taking. And yeah. so, so we did that and we did a few things that were controversial and we, we got some criticism for, and I'm so glad we did it. You know, I, I think um, sometimes you have to take risks and, um, you know, and get over some, uh, you know, some preconceptions in order to tell a, big, a larger story. And, but, but the street was super intense. It was super intense and we learned so much about um, working with um, uh, diverse um, and multicultural societies, um, people that are, um, you know, under, like have no, no medical aid, have no support from home, um, having to deal with the, with the law constantly um, being caught and for nothing, you know, just because of discrimination. It was, it was a huge, huge school, this, this two and a half years in the street. And it also allowed us to be able to, you know, to almost do anything because mm. we've been able to crack into the legal system, into the police, um, into, you know, prostitution and pimps and clubs. And um, we've been exposed to so many things uh, during this time. And uh, in your relationship with Nino and Dudu, what are important elements to you in creating trust with your subjects? Um, in, the, in the case of Nino and Dudu, you know, because although they weren't, um, both of them were 16 when we started filming, so, Maybe Nino was a bit younger, but he was street savvy. I mean, he could he could teach me anything at, at this point. <laughs> um, we 
the first thing was to be super transparent with them and explain to them the, imp the implications. The second thing was to bring in a social worker that specialized in, uh, in teens um, uh, homelessness. So she can relate to them what this, what this could mean for them once it goes out. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been in touch constantly throughout the filming with an organization that's called um, Night Watchers and they were, you know, we, we would tell them what's going on, they will tell us and we, we basically worked together and also gave them some exposure um, um, in order for other kids to find them and so they really supported our cause and, and we are theirs and um, so the so the boys knew what's going on. They knew um, that this might have um, consequences that they won't necessarily like. Although eventually they did like it, but mm. they found it helpful. But it was very. This was one of the you know most important things for us, um, not to be in a space where we're taking advantage of anyone. And then again, you know, they were teenagers, and we we had no kids back then, and. Um, we, we took them to heart very, very strongly and they were part of our lives. I would go at night and look for them, you know, if I didn't hear from them. And I would constantly check with prisons and jail where they are um, to make sure they are okay. And if I needed to hire some legal representation for them, I would do that. Um, but it was very, very intense and very emotional for us um, to, you know, to make sure that these guys are okay. And um they were like family to us um and when the film went, uh, came out dude was arrested mm -hmm. he was um he was involved in some uh robbery and he got arrested for many years so i think five years almost because there was um he had a gun it was like a whole thing um so we've been in touch with him throughout those years visiting in prison and then in 2014 uh, 14? Yeah, 2014, um, he died. And nobody knows why. There, there are, you know, speculations because he went back home. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there are a lot of speculations. Uh, uh, Nino is doing much better today. He's running um, some business. Um, and he's okay. And... Um, he got out of the cycle of prostitution and the streets. Um, but it was, it, it was really heartbreaking to learn about Dudu. I'm really, really sorry to hear that and really honored to have been able to watch the film and, and hear about their story. You know, it pulls really deeply at the heart. How do you move forward after closing a film or wrapping a film? Um, it, it's in, it, usually it's in stages because once you finish a film, well, once you abandon the film in a way, you know, because mm. you never really finish it, but um, then you start the cycle of, um, of showing the film and festivals and screenings and TV stations and so on and so forth. And Garden had a couple years of traveling. Um, he did really well in the, in the festival circuit um, as well as in the sales. And so we had a chance to really live it um, I, at this point, when, when the film came out, I gave birth to my first son and I lost my mom. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very emotional couple of years for me. And, um, but still, 
we've been traveling with this film and presenting it and we got a lot of pushbacks also because you know there's this perception that if you are you know israeli you can't really make a film about palestinians for example because your bias and all that uh, which i totally disagree and so we had also it was very very interesting discussion around this film in many levels and it got a lot of support and encouragement from the from the film um from the field people and uh, industry and um and also from the press but it's it's like it's a it's like a dissolve you know moving to the next thing it's always some sort of a dissolve you know you have to move on this is also work it's not just art yeah we basically moved to the next thing and we did some things for TV and we started lecturing and um, going into academia more. Um, and I, I guess we needed that break, you know, like this methodical um, break from filmmaking after uh, Garden. Um, it was a couple painful years in the sense of creating, like we felt we need to, to do more academia, more lecturing, more advising. Um, and we did a couple of uh, films for TV also that I, I, I don't even regard in my, you know, as part of my career. Mm. But then we felt like we can never go back to things that are trivial, you know? Like we, we felt like we always need to touch something super raw and, and super real and um, we can never turn back. And then we met this guy who's um who was a collaborator and we actually met him through so when we were filming garden and we we've been a lot in the street one one morning as we were driving with our car from the garden we saw a man um in the garbage um basically his body his legs were outside and i took a photo of that of that man and Later on, I, I talked to a friend, a, a journalist, and he had told me that a collaborator was found in the trash can um, after a vendetta, and um, that was the guy, and I, I filmed it, I, I filmed him. Thinking, did someone actually did something about that? I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating because there are quite a few people live in the, in the, in the in Southern Tel Aviv, in, horrible conditions and they've been collaborators what's happening with their kids i was like what's going on with their next generation it's like a scarlet letter you know and and that's what really started the, the research for the collaborator and his family a film about a palestinian man who collaborated with israeli forces who's waiting with his wife and five children on asylum and citizenship and is struggling to assimilate one thing i want to touch upon which i think is really interesting when you're doing these long-term projects is funding and equipment and how do you keep yourself going what is your biggest piece of advice on that um to be self-sufficient first of all um own your own gear uh, always have your own editing suite um know exactly who you want to work with and surround yourself with the best people i think that's that's the main thing you know never compromise on your gut feelings regarding people you work with um never compromise on taking a job always do the things that you feel most attached to and have the biggest faith in because these are the projects you will, will be able to finance um mm. so you know, that's, that's what I mean when I'm saying you, ha you have to be super passionate about what you do. 
you have to fully be convicted about where you want to go with that and who you who which audience you want to to hit and that that was always something that was from the get-go was very very strong for us and we always talked about it without studying it in film school out of the understanding of life like you know who you want to surround yourself with um, what kind of stories you want to tell what really speaks to you and what do you do that does not um, go against your moral codes and your you know your your faith and so having said that you know, we you know every project we decided to do we would you know draft a one paper send it first of all to the to the funds that we think will be the right for us um those who usually deal with human right issues and you know society um and we were luckily we had a lot of luck with that i mean we never really had to struggle for those films we believed in um and so with with diamonds and rust we got financed by the soros uh fund that later on became sundance fund and then garden we received three times i think sundance fund um in different stages in the development and production then completion and then we participated in the um, in the Sundance lab and in the Sundance producer lab and so they were a great great support and then with the collaborator and his family ITVS uh, funded us partially and then we had also our longtime collaborator which is Arte France um, mm -hmm. which basically supported all of our films and it was also a thing you know to always maintain um, a, uh, an international dialogue and um, an international funding to, you know, not to be in a, in a space where you're in the midst of shooting and you can't finance this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. You've created multiple things, as you talked about a little bit before, Itchy Love and Itchy Love 2, and then obviously your latest project, Lennox Hill, which is streaming on Netflix. So how does your process differ when you're working for television versus for uh, a documentary film? I think the, the the difference is more in the production side of things mm -hmm. and uh, the risks that you take. In a film, you take more risks because you can allow yourself. It's a, it's a smaller project usually, even though it can take the same amount of time for filming and completion and everything. But it, but in in the risk is is smaller because it's a one piece, and if it doesn't go, you know. You move on. Mm -hmm. um, a show is a bigger commitment, especially because you work with the network and um, and production-wise, the network is fully invested in it. And so you you don't you can't really take risks, and you don't really take risk once you are you know you are fu fully financed for a show. You know you have to deliver um, much more content on one hand, but but it's it's a different it's a different storytelling it's a different structure in it the spread is different the the story is propelling in a different way and um the in depth is something that can be either contained in every episode or it can spread out and creates you know this mm -hmm. this meaningful thread into thread that creates this this enormous rug you know so um so 
this this is the difference and obviously um, financially wise and production wise it's a, it's a whole different ball game let's talk a bit about Lennox Hill it's an eight-part documentary series with one special episode that you return to the hospital when uh, COVID-19 crisis is unraveling um, in New York and you follow four doctors tell us a bit about why you chose the four doctors that you did you know, when you when you're stepping into a space like this, you have a story to tell. And, you know, we realize what we want to say and we realize where we're aiming for and what is what we want to convey to our audience. And so we had to find people that that are able to um, to be fully transparent, honest um, and not to care about, you know, not to calculate their words, but basically be, you know, mm-hmm. who they are. You know, one of the most elementary things about um, documentary is the casting, like who you chose to follow, who you choose to follow. And um, um, these people, they, they should hold a story and they should hold a screen regardless of what you are mm. going to say and what your conviction is. Um, so it was, it was a search, you know, we met so many people. Um, but we knew that we need this straightforwardness. We knew we wanted the responsibility. So therefore we took David because he had so much on his shoulder and he, um, he had to, you know, to, um, to tell a wider story also about the healthcare, um, situation and what does it really mean for the country and not just like in this small bubble that's called Lennox Hill. Um, so we needed that wider, wider stroke that we knew we we're going to get from someone in, that is um, higher up. Um, we wanted to speak about diversity, about women um, in, the, in, the, in medicine. Um, we wanted to, chat, to touch the most painful moments uh, where people need to take, you know, big decisions. So all of these elements came into the casting, you know, the decision making of taking uh, an neurosurgeon, um, um, uh, uh, someone who's um, specializing in uh, in tumors in the brain, uh, an OBGYN doctor that is also Afro-American and um, and has a lot of a lot a lot of things to say about women's health and about um, uh, undermining uh, women's women ab- abilities and and Mirtha who was outstanding, you know. From it's quite extraordinary, you know. We we interviewed. Um, I don't know, tens and tens of people. Mm. And these four people, we knew, you know, after one sentence, we knew they're going to be in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite extraordinary to look at the, at the reel that we made, you know, in the research and see that everything is there. Like all the lines that we wanted to be there, to be in the show are already there in the research. Research is, is a crucial element in, in documentary filmmaking. Um, in order for it to be very deep and also to have the ability to eventually tell a story in an understated way that will resonate. Yeah, because the series feels so natural. It, the intersections that are there are so multi-layered, And then obviously with COVID as well, it becomes just really a capturing of history. You moved from Israel to New York for this project. What did that trend with your children? So what was that move like? And after creating medical documentaries in Tel Aviv, where did you notice the most striking differences with Israel and the United States? I think, first of all, 
in the work culture, there's, uh, it's a whole different world. Um, the appreciation, um, the fact that you are being seen as a filmmaker in a, diff in a whole different light. Um, I love Israel and I think, you know, we had a prosperous career there and, um, and I'll probably produce some things there, you know, in the future, but um, as a workspace, it's extremely intriguing and extremely limiting and limited. Um, and moreover, you know, you you very much, you know, it's a, it's a very small crowd and, and the opportunity to actually um, convey all this international and, and, and um, universal, um, you know, stories that we want to tell, we felt that it's not the right space for us anymore, um, especially entering into the TV arena. Um, and New York was, was a natural choice. My husband grew up here. Um, we've been working with the States forever for all our films. And we've been coming here four times a year, uh, had, you know, multiple uh, colleagues here that we love. And um, we always had great collaborations. So it, it wasn't a question. It was just a matter of like when. And obviously, it was more natural to do it in our 20s or our 30s. But you know, life happened, my mom got sick, um, then my dad got sick, and I didn't want to abandon them. And so there's all these things that just made us stay in Israel. Um, and when I was 43, um, literally one morning, I told Adi, um, that's it, I'm done. I'm ready. We're going. Um, we're going. And, and we were still in the midst of two productions. Mm. And so I did long distance, um, you know, editing and um, consulting and whatnot. And Adi stayed in Israel and I moved here with my three boys. Oh, wow. And he, yeah, he came here every month for, you know, a week or two. And we just managed to do it for two years and then he moved here permanently. Wow. Um, so with Lennox Hill, you're following doctors and patients and you see, you know, humanity's most beautiful moments, birth and gender reveals and days off and celebrations and very successful operations. And you see obviously the worst moments, diagnoses and overwhelm and navigating pain and, and grief. How do you balance in those moments and with all of your films, um, your filmmaker hat and your human hat? Yeah, I, I, there isn't a real distinction between my filmmaker hat and my human hat. It's kind of like one the same. <laughs> yeah, one big hat, very heavy one. Look, it's 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 a fine balance, you know, that you find throughout um, filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. Um, one of the, you know, the I think the most helpful thing is to understand you have to be present and as you are as human being, you know, to be present in the moment and to fully understand it and to fully understand all its layers and all its emotions um, towards the people you are filming, um, towards your team, towards yourself. It's just this, um, you know, it's, it's this understanding of presence and trust that you, um, that you, um, you know, embed in, in, in your work. There are moments where, you know, you sit with family, for example, that been facing the worst moment of their lives, you know, and you, you are so 
humbled by it, but also so thrown away, you know, as human being as well, because it's so painful mm-hmm. and you really have to hold yourself and just be there and observe mm-hmm. the fact that these people are allowing us to be present in this moment speaks to so much about the manner that we work, but also I think it speaks to the people that we choose as subjects, mm-hmm. you know, like the doctors and their inherent trust with their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, these are powerful moments that we sometimes need few days to recuperate from super emotional scenes, super emotional, uh, junctions with patients or with any subject that we're, we're filming, you know, even with the boys in garden and, um, and, and with Ibrahim and, and the collaborator, you, you find yourself after a while, after getting this intimacy and this access and trust with those human, you, you find yourself so like, so present mm-hmm. in their lives and so invested that it really gets to you. And, um, and you have to learn to, to take a step back and look at your life and get some perspective and understand that this is, this is a burden I say, or, 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 or a package that you have decided as the human that you are and the filmmaker that you are, that you're going to carry on you and you can't let it be too heavy. You can't let it giving you so much grief. Um, and, and you have to learn to live with it. Sometimes you have to cut your emotions. And so it's sort of like a very fine dance of, where I allow myself to be emotional, where I protect myself. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like for doctors, you know, they, yeah. they have to give so many bad news, you know, they, so they have to be, they have to protect themselves. But we, as you can see in Lenox Hill, they, they have moments that they crack too, you know, it's, and their shield is being broken. And that about that, ser- about the series is so, um, I think part of why it is so powerful is because you see the, doctors balancing those the extreme highs and extreme lows but you are also as a viewer experiencing and you know that the filmmakers were also experiencing a different but high and a low at the same time so it's uh paralleled um throughout which is a really intense and special experience to be able to have as as a viewer i think this is the poetry in filmmaking and in art in general you know you you strive to to have the most um you know the most delicate tonality of the the human emotions and the human, you know, everything you're experiencing. So going in depth into those things, you, that's where you create all these multi-layers, like in the painting, you know, when you have all these colors of the situations of the people, of the overall picture of what does it mean to us as society. So having the ability to, to build all, to build all these, stones you know one on top of the other and and yet keep something so genuine and so true and um this is what we are striving for and 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 i'm so happy you know about lennox hill how how we really managed to get to all these hearts and all these people and this huge audience that love the show so much because they they really got it and you know we we worked this is this is like um it's it's such a fine puzzle um to make a show like this and 
and to make this show particularly, you know, with all the multiple characters and situations and all these emotions and also not go too far, you know, and just mm -hmm. always keeping this fine balance and let the audience have its, its feelings and not, you know, shove anything into your face or <laughs> right, right. You know, not be overly sentimental, but you know, keep some dignity and also keep the dignity of the patient. And so there, it's all very fine balance of how you treat human being. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to my childhood, it's, it really speaks to the way I was brought up. My, my mom was an incredible human being. I mean, she was so gentle and loving and um, so super smart. And she, she really reached a lot of hearts of people um, all of my friends would come to my house mostly for my mom, you know, and, and so is my, my brother's friends. And because she had this ability to really reach people's hearts and, um, and, and always see the good in, in people and, and try to bring out the good in them. You know, it's a lot of it. It's like when, when you're a filmmaker, you have some sort of responsibility to bring the best out of people, you know, because you come and you film someone. So you can show his quirky sides and you can laugh at him or whatever. I mean, I could never, but um, you have a responsibility towards this human being because you are going to expose him. So I'm not saying you're going to make a PR for him. No, mm. but I'm saying you have, you have a responsibility to show him in the, in the most honorable, uh, honorable manner possible. Um, and so is you and show his humanity. If also, if you want to, know to influence if you want to inspire people if you want to to raise discussion about the human you know condition mm -hmm. you have you really have to be be able to be humble and to and to let this person bring the fullest and the best in him mm -hmm. yeah and that's so fascinating about about the work is the complexity of of of, of a human and what they do and and how they came to be and how they act day to day Tell us a little bit about the legalities of creating a project like this, because if I were to be interested, for example, in pursuing to film inside of a hospital, how do I get consent from the patients or does the hospital itself give the consent? This is one of the things that we, you know, I touched to what I said about how we love to infiltrate big organizations. Yeah. Um, I love cracking things like that. I think it's fascinating and it's, there is nothing that is impossible at the end of the day. Like everything is possible. Um, dealing with the, with the American healthcare and the HIPAA, the, the HIPAA which protects um, the privacy, the, the privacy laws of patient is particularly complicated because you basically can't film anyone without his peer consent. So if he comes in in a, in a horrendous situation, you can never film him. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have his consent previously, um, unless you have uh, an apotropos or someone that is, um, you know, his proxy fully. So um, we had to create a system, like a legal system, basically, that um, is fully HIPAA trained um, through a medical organization and accompany us to everywhere we go. And mm -hmm. Um, basically uh, making sure everyone is signed before we even meet them, before we even greet them, before we even decide if you want to film them. So, um, but we have an incredible team at Ulari. Um, I'm very proud of them. You know, we've been together for many years and um, we do ever have, you know, a whole legal system where, 
you know, they, they will view the materials and say, hey, this is, you know, this might be a problem or whatever, you know, um, because the sensitivity of the, of the patient uh, rights. Mm-hmm. So that's something we also had in Israel. In, in the States, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's similar. And you wrapped the series in November of 2019, if I'm right. Um, but you returned to the hospital when, um, and obviously the stars of the show, when the COVID-19 crisis really hit. And we get to see this as the audience, this really rare opportunity of seeing the doctors as the heroes that they are in general. And then we get to see them now in this time fighting and rallying in the pandemic. What did this return look like? And quite literally capturing history because also that summer was uh, a really important and historical summer for the United States with the murder of George Floyd. I think we didn't fully um, realize what we've been through, you know, it's so close. Um, it was, it was a turmoil and it was, it was, Adi says that it was this huge emotional tsunami that you, you know, you, couldn't really grasp and because um, we didn't really know what this pandemic means also medically you know emotionally nobody really understood um, where this is going yeah at the start of the episode they're sitting at the table and there's so many people at 20 people at the table with no masks and you're right, right now you're like oh no <laughs> yes right it was the first day that basically there was an announcement that everything needs to change and people need to start wearing masks mm-hmm. Somewhere in December, we already understood that it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody did, but we uh, we suppressed it. I I would still go out, you know, um, and like hang out with friends in bars. Um, and we already knew it's in Italy and it's coming close, you know. I will never forget that time in New York too, because we all knew someone. Then hand sanitizers started popping up in places they usually weren't, but you could still go out to a restaurant. Everything was a okay, but it felt like this looming thing. When is it? And we knew New York City is just people live very close on top of each other. Yes. Yeah. Right. I remember we were sitting in Lucienne uh, in the Lower East Side, and like all of us, a bunch of twenty people on the bar. And the news, you know, and everybody's talking, everybody, they were from France or Italy, you know, and, and, <laughs> and this person is saying, oh, I just came from Rome. And we, and when we left the restaurant, we all said, we all going to have COVID now. It's, it's, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, so we understood it's coming and um, we told the doctors already, we're going to be with you. I mean, it's, um, and and they knew it's coming like every and every everyone in the medical arena they knew everyone knew and they already started you know gearing up but um and start and having those conversation with doctors from uh one and um i think it was the ninth where we filmed our first yeah so on the 8th on march 8th we called jill coleman the the head of back then the the president the head of uh, the CEO of Lennox Hill. And we said, hey, Jill, um, we know things are going on. Uh, we would like to come and, and film you in your first morning meeting to figure out what's going on. And we just, we need to, we didn't know exactly what we want to do, but we knew that we will definitely be with them throughout this period, however long it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And so we just, we just threw ourselves into the water and, um, 
and join this process. And very fast, we realized that we have no crew mm. anymore. Everybody's in the houses. And um, it's going to be just Adi and me. And I need to rush into the editing room and start collecting whatever he's sending me. So we had my assistant was working um, um, remotely. And then I recruited one of my editors to come work with me because we we, we realized that whatever we we're doing, we wanted to come out with the show. Um, mm-hmm. And it was almost impossible, um, mm-hmm. you know, having to go through all the, you know, all the international things that needed to be in an international TV station. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked like crazy 24 seven and uh, we divided me and the other editor, we divided the time between us and uh, we worked like crazy and we, we, we just spent the time with them. We had no like, you know, no doubts that we we're going to be there and Adi would come back home getting undressed outside our townhouse, you know, standing with his underwear, all the neighbors already had already seen his underwear uh, during the pandemic. And, um, and then he would come into the house because we still didn't understand like mm-hmm. how you get, can get it. Can he touch your clothes? You know, there was all these speculations, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, BLM started, you know, and, it's, and it was a super, super emotional time for all of us. And we were filming, so um, it had he, it had to hit the the episode as well. Like it had, it, it was all part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I have to say, you know, it's it's like we really didn't think much when we did it. Mm-hmm. It was so emotional, and it was so emotional driven, emotion driven. Um, the structure made itself like it was it, it just propelled and also you know having the experience of doing line of sale and we were in the motion like honestly it was just like so fast um coming from working with 30 people into like four people working on this you know and right. and doing it in no time um it just reminded us you know what we can do and what we always did before we came to the states and everything became so big you know <laughs> Yeah. It just puts things in perspective and in proportion. And um, I think this entire time, this entire pandemic has put things in perspective for everyone mm-hmm. and show us how much we are capable of and how many possibilities we actually have if we turn off all the noise around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that final or the, the special additional episode really presents that. So much ground to cover. Thank you so much. I can't wait to follow your work further. Uh, what is next for you so we can keep an eye out? Um, so we're actually doing um, another show now um, that I can't elaborate much. If you want to do a pickup, once we have a press release, I think somewhere next month. Definitely. So I'll be happy to talk about it. And I'm writing um, I'm, for the first time. I'm actually completing a script, <laughs> a fiction script. So it's super fun and yeah, and developing to other like shows. So it's, it's a very interesting time for us. Um, super creative. Um, you know, when, when we came here to do Linux Hill, we were very much into the hurdles of moving here, moving our kids, you know, yeah. we were very busy with life and now we are still very busy with life because three kids uh, provide a lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
but but we have you know we have the headspace um, to actually create more things and um, and and to do all those things we love um, to tackle. So um, it's an interesting time. Yeah. Very last question that we end on: um, If you could look at your younger self, let's make her twelve years old. Uh, what would you say to her? Just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I was such a badass teenager. <laughs> yes. And, and I thought that I'm crazy. And I thought that I'm like, um, no one understands me. But I always like did my thing. You know, I, I felt that I'm in constant fight with everyone because I, I was so insistent on like doing my art, skipping this class and doing that class. Like I, I had so many issues during my school years. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, I'm so happy about all that. But back then it was really painful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ruthie. Thank you for joining us. This is very, very special. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And make sure that you check out Ruthie, Adi and Yulari's work, all linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a five-star review and share the episode with your pals or on your Instagram story. You can tag me at Nadine Rumor and the podcast at In Her Lens Podcast. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Cheers.